All right, everybody, welcome to the first episode of This Week in Startups for 2022. It is Mollywood's first official episode, and she's a managing director here at Launch, the investment firm that I started. So we're going to do a full news show today. Molly, tell the audience what we're going to be talking about. So much. Tech news is off to a hot start in 2022. Quick commerce startup Joker lost $159 per order in the US in August. We're going to talk about whether that is or is not a large number. It is. Startup valuations also large numbers. We've got charts from PitchBook and the Wall Street Journal. COVID policy and testing failures, which is tech adjacent. Don't worry. OpenSea freezing over $2 million of NFTs going against decentralization, according to some. And a dramatic reading i think this is going to be our new thing of yeah. an anti-web3 twitter exchange between aaron levy box ceo and brian chesky airbnb ceo who gets a little bit of the beavis and butthead treatment from me if i'm being 100 percent honest <laughs> stay tuned <laughs> this week in startups is brought to you by marketer hire need expert marketing help fast Hire vetted marketing specialists this week from the company already used by Netflix, Allbirds, and more. Get $500 off your first hire at marketerhire.com slash twist and use code twist. Fellow.app is a game changer for all your one-on-ones and team meetings. Go to fellow.app slash twist to get $1,000 in credits. And FanDuel Sportsbook. When you refer a friend on FanDuel Sportsbook, you'll be entered for a chance to win an all-expenses-paid trip to Super Bowl 56 for two people. And if you're new to FanDuel, you can also sign up with promo code TWIST to get your first bet risk-free up to $1,000. Let's get into the news. We gotta, sure. You want to read the first story? You want me to read it? Yeah, tell me about this story. I'm so uh, this is absolutely amazing. And also, I confess, I had never heard of this company. So Joker, Mm. is that we're calling it? Yeah, it's Joker. Wow. That's an unfortunate um, convergence of occurrences because Joker, and this is not a joke. Ha ha. Quick commerce startup Joker apparently uh, lost $159 per order in the United States in August. This is according to the information, which obtained some internal documents. That is not her customer, it's per order. They basically pulled a brandless. Remember when mm-hmm. brandless sort of had to admit that they were actually, you know, yeah. using 60 times more per order than they thought? This was sort of like that. Mm. It is an astonishing amount of money to be losing, even for one of these quick commerce companies that is trying to sort of do deliveries, what, within 15 minutes, like super fast, 30 minutes or less, sometimes as fast as 10 to 15 minutes. They are different business models. There's also one called GoPuff, the, uh, different from Uber Eats or DoorDash. They don't hire part-time contractors and buy third-party goods. They actually have their own inventory, which they store in leased warehouses called dark stores. It's kind of the ghost kitchen model of super speedy delivery. The drivers don't use their own vehicles. Uh, Joker gives them e-bikes. And in 2021, they launched in 10 cities across the US and Latin America, New York City, Mexico City, Lima, the capital of Peru, which sound to me to not be very easy cities to do super fast delivery in, yeah. let alone all of the other <laughs> concerns that they have here. But yeah, it's it's a they're they're losing massive amounts of money. I think yeah, seventy four million dollars just in the United States and eighty four million in South America. All right, so there's a lot to unpack here. Mm-hmm. Um, there are two major concepts in startup land, and now that you're going to be an investor, you're going to hear these terms come up over and over again, Molly. Uh, one is unit economics, which I, I'm sure you've heard of before, which is yeah. on a on a transactional basis, like what happens? Okay, you made a pie and you it's eight slices and each slice costs you, you know, 75 cents. What is it or 50 cents to make? What is the person behind the counter cost, et cetera? And you break down in each unit, what's your profitability? And so it's very important for a company uh, that's going to do a lot of transactions to have the unit economics really dialed in. And you can really um, refine those unit economics over time. So in this case, if they are buying the bicycle, how long does the bicycle last? How many rides does it last? What's the maintenance of it? Okay, it lasts for a thousand rides, and then we have to replace it, and it costs $100, so it's 10 cents a ride. And you start figuring out your unit economics. Mm-hmm. That, that's one. Um, and then there is asset light versus asset heavy marketplaces. So a marketplace uh, where you used to work mm-hmm. uh, is where you have- kind. Not that kind, but you have, you know, two different sides of the transaction, a store, which has a bunch of items in it, and you have a customer who's buying stuff from that item. So 
Airbnb is an example, eBay of a marketplace. Asset heavy means you own the assets. So asset heavy would be, well, there's a factory where Amazon, not a factory, there's a warehouse where Amazon actually stores stuff. Uber Eats or DoorDash, as examples, are asset light. Mm -hmm. They don't have to inventory the food, right? The food is made by a restaurant or 7-Eleven or Walgreens and it's delivered. So this is an example of somebody saying, I'm going to make an asset heavy marketplace and I don't know my unit economics yet. And so this is pretty brutal. Like how could it possibly cost that much money? Well, they may be inventorying a lot of, um, a lot of in, of this inventory to go faster and make it more predictable, which is how an entrepreneur thinks they get really addicted to like, well, it's just easier if I make this full stack, everything from top to bottom. I own the bicycles. They're full-time employees. They get benefits. They get vacation. Well, once you would do that, you've added 30% to the cost structure. People are out for four weeks of vacation and days off. You have to really start accounting for all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And, but now the converse of it is, if that, um, that might be month one, or that might be quarter one of them deploying in one city, which means they had to pay a lease. They had to fill the inventory. It might drop down by 90% in month in quarter two, and then it might drop another 90% in quarter three as they put all those fixed costs in, they fill the inventory up. So I would take the number right now as probably indicative of an early stage startup, maybe give them a little bit of a break and they'll easily get that down. But the thing that I would be very concerned about is, can this be done asset heavy? Mm-hmm. I'm not certain it can be done asset heavy, which is why DoorDash um, and other folks are not in the um inventory game the inventory game right yeah. there and and also there's cloud kitchens um which travis started um and i, I won't talk too much about that but obviously travis is a close friend and um they're not doing the delivery they just rent to entrepreneurs uh, culinary entrepreneurs the space so if you're a culinary entrepreneur and you want to start a burger business and you want to start molly's burgers and you want to put it in 100 cities you can go to cloud kitchens and have 100 you know, little workstations in a cloud kitchen, one brand, and they will support you in your journey, but they're not going to make the burgers themselves. I right. think. And they're not of... going to deliver them. It seems like a company like no. Joker. And we'll sort of, I'm very curious to see whether those economics can, I mean, it's like, there's two questions. One is how do you manage your inventory? If you have to get yeah. everything to someone within 30 minutes, like that seems to me that you have to stock a lot of stuff, maybe yeah. more stuff than is actually efficient. On top of that, delivery has always been a bit of a loser as a business, mm-hmm. historically, way yep. back in the early dot-com days, right? It was like, if you want to lose a crap ton of money, try to deliver stuff fast. Yep. So this has the hallmarks of both of those things. E-bikes are kind of a new wrinkle that could be a little bit better. In a time when most companies have tried to solve the delivery thing by being a marketplace. Yes. And you have to, I mean, people are just not paying attention to what happened in the past. If you're going to inventory this stuff in a city, that is the only way to do a 15-minute delivery. So that means you need to have Manhattan real estate. So they're trying to find Manhattan real estate that's really cheap. So when Cosmo did this in New York, they had warehouses or like, you know, kind of spaces, really janky spaces on like 10th Avenue, 34th Street, when that was not a cool area, when it was not developed. And you had those kind of areas. Now... What they're doing is, my understanding is they're finding bodegas and corner shops, Korean groceries, all these kind of like niche things that exist in New York City. And they're kind of taking them over and saying, hey, can we buy your bodega from you? And then we're going to just shut the front doors. And then we're going to make that our delivery place. So there's a little controversy about that I've heard of like kind of gentrification or taking over like these local businesses that have a certain ethnic flavor. Um, But that's another wrinkle in this is. Mm. Right. Do you want to get ahead of your Q1 marketing goals? I bet you do. Well, wouldn't it be nice to hire a ringer to help you out and to crush all of your goals? Well, with Marketer Hire, now you can. They give you access to expert freelancers on demand. No long-term contracts, no risk. So you only pay for what you use. You can hire experienced specialists across the most valuable marketing disciplines like paid social, paid search, growth, SEO content, and even have a fractional CMO, Chief Marketing Officer. Again, no long-term contract. You can cancel at any time. That's how confident they are that you're going to get such great service and results from their freelancers. And if it's your first time working with freelance talent, 
You'll start with a no-risk trial. Only hire what you need and stay on budget with hourly, part-time, or full-time agreements. Every freelancer on Market or Hire goes through a rigorous vetting process with industry experts and freelancers from Market or Hire have been hired at over 1,500 companies, including top brands like Netflix, Allbirds, and the Lambda School. So get $500 off your first hire at marketerhire.com slash twist. And you can get a free consultation on who to hire based on your specific needs and goals along with that five hundies right now at marketerhire.com slash twist, M-A-R-K-E-T-E-R-H-I-R-E.com slash twist. Make sure you use the promo code twist to get the five hundies. And, and the reason why I think not to um, cheer for the home team, but I think the reason Uber's model works better is because Walgreens already exists. So exactly. they did a deal with Walgreens. And I ordered from Walgreens the other day. We had an ant infestation because it was that raining thing in uh, oh, the God. peninsula. And, yeah. And when it rains, mm. the ants are like, where can we go? <laughs> <laughs> Anywhere in this person's house. So all of a sudden you have ants everywhere. And then we also ran out of laundry detergent. And I was like, ah, I got to get this laundry done now. I got to get these ants out of here now. I, I did the Uber Eats thing and I joined Uber Eats Prime, which, and I was just emailing with uh, DK, not TK, DK over at Uber. Uh, name drop about some ideas I had for their Uber Prime because they basically have this Uber for a hundred bucks where you don't have to pay a lot of fees. Mm-hmm. I think that that's going to be like it's going to make Uber go crazy because they have this asset light and ev- they have everything at Walgreens. The only right. problem was that uh, as I was checking out, they're like, "Hey, would you like candy and ice cream?" And I was like, "Yes." Yep. <laughs> so I was like, "I really." Tramath was eating at the poker game the other night, like those uh, Haagen Dazs bars. And I was like, I really want those Haagen Dazs bars. So I tried to order the Haagen Dazs bars and they sent me the wrong thing. They gave me like chocolate ice cream and a thing and not the Haagen Dazs bars. Like, how do you get that wrong? So yeah. you still have that shopper issue. Like, I don't know if you'd use Instacart out in the East Bay, but. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. So that Instacart where they in real time will tell you, yep. like, hey, do you want to switch this? I didn't set this. That. And do you want that? And it's drive. It's really driver by drive. I mean, it's. Yeah. It is not a. It's not a perfect system, I think, from anybody. But. No. If. But as a consumer, certainly, and somebody who's interested in the economics of this, it feels to me like leveraging the existence of lots of inventory and yeah. bringing it to people who want it is a si- much simpler, and then taking a cut in between, yes. is a much simpler proposal than we're going to stock our own stuff, we're going to have a time promise, which God help you, depending yep. on what's happening in your city, we're going to pay for hardware and we're going to pay for drivers. That said, and it's a fair note, even in our document, I would be curious to know how much Uber Eats was losing in the early days, how much yeah. DoorDash was losing per order. I find it hard to believe it was $159. No way, no way. This is like one of those <laughs> like weird numbers. <laughs> yeah, but you have to, I, we were both, you were but, a journalist. I was a journalist for a long time. We get crumbs of internal information and we try to build a story from what we see in the real world, what executives tell us, what customers tell us. And then once in a while you get this leak. And it's important to know that when you get a leaked email, sometimes there's an agenda. So this could be a disgruntled investor um, who has some beef and maybe they sent the worst possible spin of this. It could be an employee who got fired who leaked this. So you got to keep that in mind. When a piece of leaked information happens and it's in a very negative light, you got to think there are qualified investors at this company who are aware of this problem. And if they're sharing it, it might have been it might have been in the context of we started at we were losing 159. Mm-hmm. per order now we're down da- we were down to 15 in the second quarter and now we're down to three dollars but the journalist only got the first part of that right so you know we i don't take know it- like we don't know the context however we don't we do know, know that objectively that's a big yeah. number it's a big number and also the way they're running the business is asset heavy and so we do know that so when you triangulate and try to figure out this puzzle of the business which you're going to be doing as an investor now working with me on investing in companies that's what you're trying to do is actually triangulate and find the truth. Can this be a business that's profitable? It can't. You can't make this business work with full-time employees. I'm certain of it. I, I, if you did have full-time employees, I think the delivery fee would have to be 30 bucks. And so then it would only be rich people who don't care about if they're ordering $100 in groceries, a 30% tax on top of it, which listen, there are probably 10% of people or 10% of deliveries are that. Right. You really need to get to. But can you make a sustaining business on ten percent of deliveries like that? No, no, you're counting on a lot of rich people. Well, and then if you think about the brilliance of the Uber model, they already have the drivers out there. So now, when you log into your app, my understanding is it's like 
if you want to have, you know, they gamify the Uber app for drivers. I think it's like you turn it on and it's like, oh, here's an Uber Eats ride. Here's an Uber grocery ride. And here's an Uber X ride. So now you think about the number of calls you can get. The number of yeah. calls goes up. And speaking of which, yes, I think we have a segue here. We Why do. You up the seg- a good segue is always great. So, uh, well, the segue is this idea of gamification and incentives, because a thing that is still happening somewhat astonishingly is this ongoing bad behavior about tip baiting, which is something I think I covered in like 2020, which is, well, we'll let uh, a driver for one of these services explain it. A 39 second clip. We'll be right back. One of the worst things that you can encounter as a delivery driver is tip baiting. In these food delivery apps, the customer has the opportunity to reduce or increase the tips after drop-off. Tip baiting is when a customer offers a large tip to get their food faster and then take away the tip at the end. While it's good to protect the customer from having bad service by holding a tip over your head, it leaves a big opportunity to screw over the driver with tip baiting. Unfortunately, there's not really anything you can do to fight it because the customer holds all the power. My best advice would be to find an area that doesn't tip bait and stick around there. Today, I made 19 deliveries in 11 hours and 5 minutes, making $225.58, putting our 84-day running total up to $17,230.63. I think what's interesting about this is he's making $25 an hour delivering, working whenever he wants. So this whole idea that like the gig economy is like oppressive and killing people and unfair, like he said he made 200 something in 11 hours. So he's, I just divided by 10, over 20 bucks. Yeah, it's it's over ten. It's over twenty bucks an hour. That's mm-hmm. pretty amazing when you think about it as an on-demand being able to work anytime you want. But this is such an easy solution for this tip baiting. Uh, Get rid of tipping. It's the worst thing in society. Just pay. I mean, yeah. Like I, I, it, it, I, the I, fact that this this person is able to make this good living now is great. But that should not be tip dependent because it, it that tells me that he could have a great day. And I know some people who drove for Postmates during the pandemic when stuff was really rough. Right, one got lo- laid off. They were just like, we have to. Mm. drive for postmates and it was very clear to them immediately that the whole game is the tips really so you and then you live and die by the tip because the tip can change Mm. after the fact or the tip can just not get processed because you know it sends you that thing that's like rate and tip and Mm. if you don't then the driver doesn't find out they either get nothing or they or like 10 hours later or 10 days later they might all of a sudden have a tip pop up and so it's a it's an inconsistent revenue stream i don't know if it's economically possible to just pay people a flat rate maybe it's not which is a a thing that people have been arguing about and why california has tried to like pass all these gig worker laws and it's i think it's because of that insecurity of income and i don't know how you get rid of tip baiting like we should everybody should get a chance to tip according to the service if you're going to have tipping Mm. this was a big debate i had with travis in the early days of uber that i lost because I'm from Brooklyn where everybody gets tipped and my dad would tip everybody. Yeah. It was like, you know, being in like a Goodfellas movie. So the first time I took a flight, I, the flight attendant brought me a Diet Coke and I'm, kid you not, I'm 14 or 15, I'm 15 years old and uh, it's 1985. I'm flying to Florida. It's my first flight and I took $2 out of my pocket. I folded it in half and I put it in her hand. I said, that's for you, sweetheart. Like my dad would say. <laughs> and she took, the, she took the $2 and she held it over me and she dropped it on my left. She's, we don't take tips. Mm. And I was like, you don't take tips every time. I've heard she, and she was super nice to me after that. She's like, I'm, it's really nice, sweetheart. And she, she said, this is back when people called each other sweetheart in the, yeah. you know, in the eighties. And uh, it was a different time. Okay. <laughs> don't, don't at mention me, but everybody got tipped. So my whole life, my dad made me tip people. So when I would go to a restaurant, he would give each of my brothers $2. Every time they changed the bread, he would make us walk up to the bus boy and give them $2. Wow. And he said, you know, they work really hard. They're only making like whatever, $20 a shift. Give them the two bucks. Um, and we were just trained to tip, 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 tip. And so anyway, I just love tipping, but I would have these debates with Travis. And I was like, I want to give a tip. And he's like, it's going to create too much cognitive dissonance. You're leaving the, the whole idea is to take out friction. That's mm-hmm. one more step. Then we have to remind people to tip, yada, yada. Eventually he lost that battle, but he was in your camp, which is just included in the price of the thing, which is what they do in Europe. What Danny Meyer tried to do in New York. It's I think both models work. When I go to Europe and I don't have to tip, I'm always giving like a little extra and people think I'm ridiculous. Um, yeah. yeah, people should be given a living wage. And I, I like tipping, but this tip baiting thing is an easy solution. If somebody pulls this more than once, right. if you change your tip down, the second time you do it, you should just say to give the person a warning. People consider it tip baiting if you do this mm-hmm. and explain to them the term and say, you know, uh, it could, 
decrease your ranking in the service if you do this. And just like you have a ranking as a passenger, yep. they should have a delivery ranking. And if you tip under whatever the normal amount is, you should just have a lower ranking so that people can pass on delivering your food. I would actually argue that you can even go a little further back in the transaction to solve this problem, which is don't specify your tip in advance. If it's no. a tip and not the amount that the driver should be actually getting paid, like the fact that the tip is already assumed up front. Yeah, that's weird too. Right? Why did like they do that? Why, the I think problem. they, but why did they do that? Because it used to be like when you take an Uber. they don't want to pay them. Well, no, no, but why did they put it? Yeah, but I mean, why did they put it in the front? Why did they front load it? Right. I don't know. Is the question because they don't front load it on cars. I think they front loaded it because people forgot to do it at the end. Probably. And and then the payment was even more insecure because if you forget to add the tip later. But so then the problem is if you can use a tip to bait a driver, Mm. you've already got a problem. You've already created a perverse incentive with tipping, which is, oh, I will deliver this sooner and take more care with it because I'm getting a better yes. tip as opposed right. to because I'm getting paid enough to do this right. That's not how a tip should work. That's, That's not a, how a tip should work. A tip should work. It'd be a, it's a little extra on top for great service. Exactly. But I like tipping on the way in. I'm a big tipper on the way in. I'll just I mean, I'm that. a big tipper. Like, I want to be clear. Yeah. I wouldn't. I don't even change my tip when it's bad service because I feel too guilty because I didn't go get yeah. my own groceries. Like, I'm exactly the sucker that they're talking to with the tips yeah. up front. I'm like, we'll give 15%. I'll make it 18. Like, yeah. I, I'm a dumb dumb, but it's because yeah. I think these people should be getting paid more. Yeah. I, I, and they're actually doing fine. You know, that's like one of the great things about capitalism is like because of the competition now, they can't get drivers. And so the rates just keep going up. I mean, it, it, the Amazon workers, factory workers, Starbucks, nobody can find people. So they just keep raising the rates. And now, like, really, the minimum wage in cities is really over 20 bucks now it's not even the 15 dollars that san francisco and seattle and a couple of other people places have uh put it so pretty amazing to see that i think that's like one of the great things that happened in society it's also because we don't have immigrants coming into the country anymore i think but that we have to pay more interesting uh it's a uh it's a balance right like if we have Mm -hmm. 11 million job openings and americans don't want to take menial jobs anymore which they don't seem to want to do Right. That's true. You no. Know, yeah. It, are we going to, th- there seems to be some balance here. I think we have to look at, I, I think it should be dynamic immigration. I don't know why this is so difficult for people to understand, but if we have too many job openings, if we let more people in, and then if we don't have job openings, then we close the spigot a little bit. Like it should be in proportion to the number of open jobs we have trailing last three years. So if you average the last three years, the number of job openings, then we could actually have a point-based system like Canada, New Zealand, Australia, and let people in based on what we need. But anyway, I'm open right. up a can of worms. I think we have some of that. I know I listened to I I had a lot of I had a lot of conversation back to you at your end of the year show about that. Cause I was like, well, yes, but you still need a system for asylum and refugees. Like you just still need No, no, you should totally carve out twenty percent for yeah. people who are gonna get tortured if they go back to their country. 100%. And then we do have some point you know, we have the H one B visa and then that's totally gamified yeah. and they use a lot of whatever. Whenever there's an incentive, people will twist the game. Here's what you'll learn as an investor. You'll be on the board of a company at some point and somebody will bring up H-1B visas and they'll be like, how little can we pay them? How much are we saving? Exactly. And you're like, that's not what this is for. But and they're like, will be. but that's what it's about. It's about indentured servitude for yep. elite workers. And it's like these poor people from India who are the, the main victims of this, it was, they had to leave the country in, within 30 days if they lost their jobs. Yeah. And these, I remember when I was in IT, the IT people were like, they're, those guys are taking the weekend shifts. They're, they're coming in on Sunday to put this stuff together because yeah, uh, we'll fire them if they don't. Like I was in the room when these conversations happened with managers when I started my career in my 20s, fixing laser printers. And it was like, what? They're like, yeah, these guys can't say no. These Indian guys we have, they, if they say no, we kick them out of the country. I'm like, what? And they're <laughs> like, yeah, and they get paid less than you do. And I was like, but they do the same work and they work the weekends and we don't. I'm like, yeah, they're lucky to be here. Like it was a really... It's, I mean, that was like one of the, when Trump said they're abused, I was like, I went on CNBC and I said, it's kind of right. You know, yeah. they are they're pretty much abused. Hey, everybody, I want to tell you about an amazing new app. It's called fellow.app. And it's a meeting productivity platform where high performing teams can collaborate on meeting agendas. And with fellow.app, you can track all key decisions that you and your team make. And you get to hold each other accountable for the action items in that meeting using their amazing software. No more time wasting meetings. 
you know the ones no agenda no clear takeaways and no accountability you get out of the meeting you're like that was a waste of time no more of that after selling his last company serial entrepreneur Aiden Mirzai swore that he would never attend another meeting without a clear agenda so he adopted an amazing model which I have as well no agenda no attenda that's right no agenda no attended and Aiden and his co-founders built a tool to make meetings productive and delightful for everyone involved. So I want you all to try fellow.app. It's simple, beautifully designed, and it helps you stay organized. It connects your calendar to collaborative meeting agendas and action items. It's a game changer for all your one-on-ones and team meetings. And the best part, you'll never have to attend a meeting without knowing exactly what the purpose is and who is going to do what and what the desired outcomes are. A thousand dollars in credits are waiting for you at fellow.app slash twist f-e-l-l-o-w dot a-p-p slash twist and join companies like shopify lemonade warby parker and thousands of others who are already using fellow to make meetings delightful fellow.app slash twist get a thousand dollars off give it a shot fellow.app slash twist i guess we should talk about these valuations medium valuations of usc and early stage startups have gone bonkers and PitchBook provides some data wall street journal uh did a good story on it but a couple of charts will show you. Uh, this is the median valuation of U.S. seed and early stage startups. Uh, and you can see uh, something crazy happened in 2020 uh, into 2021, where we had this 12 to $15 million valuation for early stage companies. That means the total enterprise value, the value from the company is, let's say, $15 million. So if you put in $1.5 million as an investor, you own 10%. Now it's over $25 million. This is for the same companies, or in some cases, companies with less performance. So why did that happen? We can talk about that in a minute. Uh, there's more money chasing these startups because they've done so well. Uh, and this is what happens in a bubble. Uh, more people want to invest. And really, it's about the output. So if you look at the price to sales ratio, uh, price to sales ratio is uh, the value of the company to its uh, sales, how much revenue it has. And if you look at the public markets, it's grown to over 15x from just a couple of years ago being 5x. And so the outcomes are three times bigger and the early stage valuations are, you know, basically almost double. So that's what you're seeing. And a record amount of money is being invested. It was 92 billion, I think, uh, was invested. And so it's doubled year over year for a couple of years. And just five or six years ago, we were putting $30 billion. Uh, so I don't know if you have any questions about that, Molly, but you know, the main reason I was interested in this, I mean, I'm just interested in this in generally because there's so much money sloshing around and it does seem like there's some people are like, I don't even know where to put my money at this point. So sure. Startup sounds great. Yep. Um, <laughs> NFTs. Why not? But, yep. <laughs> we'll get but there. it raises for me a question that perhaps we can explore. I'm going to drop it here, but we don't yep. have to spend too much time on it. But a question to explore in the Sunday show, possibly, mm. yep. is is this kind of fundamental question of how is valuation determined? Mm -hmm. Like, I think when you ask about, when you try to figure out how VC works, that is probably one of the more interesting and mysterious and contentious and controversial and fundamental super, questions. Super, it's super simple. Um, at the earliest stages, valuation yeah. is a function of the market, the demand for that startup and that founder. Yeah. And that's very hard for people to admit uh, because they would like it to be more of a formula like we see in public markets. So in public markets, you're like, okay, how many Pelotons were sold? How many Teslas were sold? How many people subscribe to Netflix? And let's do some back of the envelope math. It's a lot of fun, right? You can right. be like, hey, each Pel we did a thing where each Peloton uh, subscriber was worth $35,000, then the stock crashed, and now they're worth like 5000 or 10000 It's like, okay, that makes more sense to me, right? right. At these early they're stages, you, yeah, you can just take them all the different metrics and then just start dividing or multiplying and, and come up with some and then you can compare so how does a netflix subscriber to a disney plus subscriber compare okay why does netflix get such a huge premium for their subscribers versus the disney ones well maybe that won't last uh, and maybe that's an opportunity to invest in one public company versus another in a private company you don't have a lot of metrics you have a founder or a couple of founders you have a market you have a product you may not even have a product you may have a mock-up so then it becomes what is the demand for the shares in that company for the potential. So what I always tell people is you're either selling your potential or your performance. Once you are this company Joker that we talked about earlier, mm, Joker has a certain number of deliveries now at a certain point. It's not about the potential anymore. It's about what's your unit economics. And we have some numbers there so we can start doing math. Once there's 
your profits and you're charging for the product, you can start to do that math. Before that, you're selling the potential. And the potential mm-hmm. can be determined by the team, the founder themselves, the track record, and then how many other people want to buy the shares. And then the people who want to buy the shares, like Clubhouse was a dogfight between Bill Gurley and Mark Andreessen. And I think they got a $100 million valuation when they had like a 1,000 VCs and you know early adopters on it. And you're like, how is that worth $100 million? You're valuing, if it's 1,000 people on the service, are you valuing each person as $100,000? Mm-hmm. Doesn't make any sense. Yeah. But it was that team had done other great products and there were multiple people willing to bid on it. So it got bid up just like any other auction. So when I yeah. work with founders and they're like, I, why can't I get this valuation? I'm like, well, you can look in the mirror. You're a first time founder. So sorry to break it to you. But <laughs> I'm the only guy on the phone. Yeah. And you don't have three term sheets. So if you want to really get a, something going here, you need to have three different people give you a term sheet. Mm-hmm. And coordinating that is so hard, Molly. Like, you get one term sheet and they're like, you have 48 hours to sign this. So you really have to have, you have to know people in the venture market, which these serial entrepreneurs at Clubhouse did. Then you really got the marketplace. Because like, yeah, we're not sure if we're raising. We have our seed funding. We're funding it ourselves, but we may raise and they're playing it coy. And then people start giving them term sheets and like, yeah, we'll consider that. But they're not up against it. Like a first time founder who's like, oh my God, if I don't take this term sheet of a million dollars for 10% or mm-hmm. a million and a half for 10%, I'm going to have a problem. And so what you learn as an investor is don't sweat the valuation too much if it's a great company with a great team. If you paid, I invested in Uber at under 5 million, four and a half million. If it had been 10 million, I would have made half as much money, but it still would have been a big number. Right. So you don't sweat it if it's a great company. If you can get in, you get in and you just enjoy the ride. I love it. Okay. More to come. More to come on this. I have, just so you all know, I have a list of like (laughs) 75 specific questions that we're thinking of making into their own segment, which is just like, please explain. I mean, I have a lot of follow-ups on valuation too, but we should keep going with the news. Keep going through the news here. Oh, rapid test. Go ahead. You take this one. Because you had COVID. Okay. So as a person who just took, it sounds like 10 days at least uh, worth of rapid tests. Yep. You apparently were either stockpiled them or were one of the lucky ones because as Omicron is spreading, I just I had a fit about this on Twitter yesterday because a friend of mine texted me and was like, "Okay, we just did the holidays thing. And then now there have been like three positives in the extended family. And we're trying to figure out if we have it. No rapid tests available anywhere. No PCR tests available anywhere through doctors or one medical or anything. Finally, they found a place where they could do local rapid PCR tests for three hundred dollars per person. And then the follow up to that per person, she's like a thousand dollars later, I guess we're going to try to go get these rapid PCR tests so we can find out if my kid can go to school on Monday. Then the follow up that I didn't even tweet is that they got there and there was a four and a half hour long line made up of people who had prepaid for appointments who were stuck in this car. Yeah. So she like got on the phone, they requested a, a refund and left. And what is astonishing about, I mean, this is just astonishing. So, and I tweeted that this was a big part of why my mom who had, who almost died from COVID in what? October. Oh my God. Yeah. I'm so sorry. I didn't know that. It was terrible. She, so she had Delta. I'm she assuming. had Delta. Yeah. Which and she's is brutal. Totally. You know, I mean, she and her husband both double vaxxed, but very immunocompromised. She has type one diabetes, which is a huge indicator for, you know, yep. bad side effects. She's exactly the person that like high vaccination rates are supposed to protect because somebody can still get very sick. So she did. She called me on a Thursday. She's like, you know, my husband and I both have colds. I'm like, you know, I'm colds. You have COVID. <laughs> like you're in North Dakota. The vaccination rate is like two. So go get a test. They, she's like, well, we drove around to a bunch of stores. We couldn't find a test. And the doctor told us that we couldn't come in because we have symptoms. So they wow. didn't get tested. I mean, could she have tried harder? Probably, but at some point they're sick. So then by Monday, she's in the ER. With a blood oxygen level below 90. Oh, my God. That's Almost dead. Wow. Almost dead. Almost a ventilator. Oh, my yep. God. It took them 15 hours to find a bed because the <sighs> ICUs were so full. I mean, it just was like the whole thing. Was this thing, in California? Right? No, North Dakota. In North Dakota. Okay. Yeah. So hospitals were full, low vaccination rates, you know, the whole thing. But a huge part of the, re- like, had she been able to get a test on a Thursday, knowing that they were both high risk, particularly her. They could have gone and gotten monoclonal antibodies then. And they instead could have, of 
almost dying, having two courses of money. She got the full presidential package, remdesivir, the steroids, two treatments of monoclonal antibodies. Like, but that actually could have been mitigated. By three days if she had tests. By three days if she had had tests. Instead of a 10-day hospital stay and really like, I mean. I got very lucky because, sorry, she went through all that. It's just crazy. And thank God she's okay. What I had done was, because I was regularly testing at the house uh, when people came by, I was just ordering the Binex. I was Mm -hmm. just buying those, you know, a dozen at a time and just putting them on a shelf just so we had them. Um, And and during early in the pandemic, I had a hookup from Finland and Korea. Um, who was sending me the early kits for $25 each and half of them would get caught by the FDA or whoever in customs. But I guess technically they were coming in uh, in an experimental kind of way or whatever. Uh, yeah. That was like in the first couple of months, somebody's like, hey, Jake, Al, you want tests? I was like, yeah, <laughs> sure. Um, and I was testing pretty regularly, but I was taking these every day to try to figure out when I could see my family again. And I felt, I did feel a little guilty about it because one day I did it twice because I was really desperate to hang out with my girls. So I took yeah. it in the morning and I took one at night anyway. Um, but the craziness of this is we have like only three or four vendors at last. I remember that have been, um, actually okayed for this. We could be making these for two or $3 each. The FDA, both administrations screwed this up. They're yeah. both incompetent. It just shows you what controls big health has over our government. Yes. And we can't even, where's the executive word? Why didn't Trump do an executive order? wartimes act and why didn't bind it biden because you know what they're both in the pocket of big health i i'm an independent in my thinking i think both political parties are grifters and i think they both wanted to see their big health contacts make bank and they wanted them to have these really profitable tests as opposed to just what's the point of this wartime act yeah right like they said oh we have this wartime i'm gonna have the wartime act that's the perfect case okay yeah take your factory Stop making whatever other tests you're making and make a billion of these. And we're going to buy them for you for $5 each. And we're going to send them to everybody's. And we were saying this on the All In podcast during the thing. Like, we should just have Amazon or the U.S. Postal Office. The put U.S. 20, Postal Service. Yeah, put 20 of these in everybody's yep. uh, in thing. Everybody's mailbox. And then, I mean, you know, the out, we would know when outbreaks were going to happen. I mean, talk about a colossal failure for a country with as much money as we have. The billion dollars we would have spent on that could have saved a trillion dollars in stimulus later or a hundred billion. It would have been the greatest investment ever. But this is the corruption we have in our own government. Referring a friend on FanDuel Sportsbook could be your ticket to Super Bowl 56. Yes, that's right. When you refer a friend on FanDuel Sportsbook, you'll be entered for a chance to win an all-expenses-paid trip to Super Bowl 56 for two people. It's FanDuel's biggest refer-a-friend offer ever. And once your friend places any bet of $10 or more, you'll both get $50 to play with, and you'll be entered into the Super Bowl sweepstakes. If you or a friend have been thinking about joining FanDuel, now is the perfect time to give it a shot. Here's why people love FanDuel. The app is easy to use, they always have great offers, and you'll get paid in as little as two hours when you win. And if you're new to FanDuel, you can also sign up with the promo code TWIST to get your first bet risk-free up to $1,000. And just download the FanDuel Sportsbook app and refer a friend for your chance to win that trip to Super Bowl 56 for two. All right, and here's an important disclaimer. 21 plus and present in Arizona, Colorado, Connecticut, Iowa, Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, Virginia, or West Virginia. Preferred players must wager $10 plus within 28 days of signing up. Bonus issued as site credit and is non-withdrawable and expires after seven days. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. No purchase necessary for the Super Bowl ticket promotion. Super Bowl promotion closes on 1-9-2022. Gambling problems? Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text next step to 53342 in Arizona or call 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat in Connecticut. 1-800-522-4700 in Colorado. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana. 1-800-GAMBLER in Michigan, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Illinois, and Virginia. TN Redline 1-800-889-9789 in Tennessee. Or visit 1-800-GAMBLER.net in West Virginia. And Germany has 80 tests. And the German government was giving them away for free. Uh, like there are, so, yeah, there are so many parts of this. Like 
yeah, we uh, it, there was the Purity. mentality of of the magic bullet, and we just got to prioritize vaccines, and everybody yep. will get that. And apparently, nobody in the Biden administration read the internet and understood that the anti-vax movement has been building online for like over a decade and was yep. going to be kind of a big deal. And then there was the failure to nationalize testing. I mean, Abbott, which makes tests, rapid antigen tests, yeah, uh, less than a year ago, was laid off the majority of its staff and was destroying testing what supplies oh yeah destroyed them because they were like oh we don't need testing now because we have vaccines and nobody <laughs> sees delta coming even though every epidemiologist that i follow on twitter has yeah. been saying for a year and a wait half wait for it hey wait guys, for it the virus yeah. is going to mutate because it's we don't coming. have global vaccination rates like the idea that anybody's saying we didn't see these highly transmissible variants coming is like i'm sorry do you guys not have any doctors at the office because like i i, I don't I have these moments where I'm like, I don't want to get all my information on Twitter. And yet I feel like I live in the future. Yeah. Because I mean, what did you think was going to happen? So we had this phenomenal moment in the United States where, because I've been obsessed with testing since the start of this, because you cannot manage what you do not measure, where on December 6th, someone in a White House press briefing asked Press Secretary Jen Psaki, shouldn't we just be sending tests to every American? And here's 49 seconds of her astonishing response. Crazy. Look at what we've done over the course of time. We've quadrupled the size of our testing plan. We've cut the cost significantly over the past few months. And this effort to uh, to push uh, to ensure insurers are you're able to get your your tests uh, refunded means 150 million Americans will be able to get free tests. Complicated though. Why not just make them free and give them out to, and have them available everywhere? Should we just send one to every American? Maybe then. Then what? Ha then what happens if you if every American has one test? How much does that cost? And then what happens after that? All I know is that other countries seem to be making them available for in greater quantities for less money. Well, I think we share the same objective, which is to make them less expensive and more accessible. Right? Uh, every country is going to do that differently. And I was just noting that again, our tests go through the FDA approval process. Crazy. I mean, I so it's a, yeah, and she's so like dismissive. Uh, Dismissive. Snotty. Yeah, so snotty. It's like such and a then, bad look. By the way, two weeks later. Only two weeks later. Only two weeks later when they were like, oh, we've approved two new at-home tests. And so we're going to expand production and make at-home tests available for, you know, like a billion more a year. And I think even some comment like we're going to send some <laughs> to people. Yeah. Which will, by the way, all of this will happen after Omicron has peaked. Right. After the National Guard has to be sent in to staff hospitals. L.A. County is already at more than 90% of capacity and their ICUs are almost full. All of this testing capability, which could have, for example, kept my mother out of the ER, is going to come too late. Yeah. Because we just apparently were like, vaccines are plenty. That'll, I'm sure that, that'll, so like, it's When you're just fighting a war, enraging. why would you not have every weapon available? If every you know weapon. that, just go for everything. Like, we, testing's one. You know, you have the vaccine, you have the the new pill that Pfizer has, you got the yep. monoclonal, just try everything, throw everything at it, and let's get everybody back to life. Uh, the good news is, uh, Omicron is a big nothing burger. Like, the people no, who are not. getting it, no, if you're, if you're vaccinated, sorry, if you're vaccinated, if you're vaccinated, because the people who are in that hospital, I think 94% of them are the unvaccinated, right? 94% of the deaths are the unvaccinated, but 6% are my mom. Okay. Well, okay. And so if you're immunocompromised, those yeah. hospitals are full. So if I break my leg, yeah, and so that's I am a, that's to totally get into an a stress issue. System, right? It's it's not. It is. Thank God, it does appear to be a mild illness in the vast, 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 yeah. vast majority of vaccinated people who get it, and that's great. But just yeah. sh by sheer numbers, it's sort of like how we know that aliens exist because there's just so many. Yeah. Like mathematically speaking, they're out there, and mathematically speaking, you know. Hundreds of thousands of infections every day are going to mean hospitals fill up. Yeah. The good news is this Omicron, if you are not immune, you're compromised and you're vaxxed or triple vaxxed. Yeah. It is what they found is it's upper respiratory. So I was watching, I love this guy, Scott Gottlieb, who's on the board of Pfizer. He mm -hmm. seems super credible to me because he's always been like very like down the middle. Because this is upper respiratory, it doesn't go into your lungs, which is exactly the experience I had and the other people who got it at Saks's uh, spectacular Christmas super spreader, TM. Um, that's his big Christmas super. Spider. I listened to that show. I was like, I'm not, I'm not talking about Sachs that is one. Like, I don't Listen care. Sax is I don't care. You would have gotten it. Anybody would have gotten it. He's really taking the, you know, the Republicans are just, 
they're hardcore about it. They're like, let what? it. It's a, it's like a it's a brush fire for them. They're just like, let the fire burn. We lose a couple people. Your mom, my dad's got diabetes. Like ah, whatever. They're just you know collateral damage. But the fact is, because it's upper respiratory, you never you have these like incredibly light symptoms. But infants don't do well with upper respiratory. And if you ever had a kid when they had a any kind of like a flu, upper respiratory, you know, like you may go to the emergency room. So now we're seeing, you know, hundreds of well, kids have gone to the emergency room now because of this. So I'm also like, yeah. I'm not really ready to write off 1400 Americans dying every day, even if they're not vaccinated, right? Like they don't deserve that. Um, you know, my feeling on it is I might take the other side of it, which is like, what more do you need to see to get vaccinated. Like, I if mean, you are going to hold the line that you refuse to get vaccinated in the face of 1,400 people dying a day, you're like somebody who doesn't wear a seatbelt in my mind or smoke cigarettes. Like, are we going to stop society for you? I, I like know. 100%. Here's our first disagreement. <laughs> oh, no, no. I don't. Oh. I 100% agree with you about yeah. this choice idea, right? You don't get to choose to make yourself like a living weapon. Not right. with my mom in your line of fire. Yeah. That's that's crappy. That so you're terrible... are you are you for mandatory? Like where do you draw the line for um, making mandatory. things a lot harder? Like I think Fine. that okay. I think I like that the fact that we've made it socially more difficult, and I think we could do even more than that. I think if we're going to have Fine. like if we're going to say businesses have to mandate vaccines, then they have to mandate them, and it can't be the like or also test. Right? Yeah. We're giving we're saying we're still giving people this option of like you have to get vaccinated or you have to yeah. you can test every week. Like no, if you're doing yeah. it, then do it, and if you're going to issue an executive order that says business is over a certain size, which I think the federal government is a hundred percent, you know, able to do, mm. then don't give them all these outs. We'll see. I mean, it's going to go to the Supreme court. It's going to be interesting to see if they can actually force companies to do this. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's I an know. interesting, I mean, we've mandated yeah. seatbelts. Yeah. So like, maybe you people, do it the same way. And you're just like, there's a fine. That's not a, yeah. I, I have a hard time with the concept of like holding somebody down and forcing them to get a shot. Um, yeah, even I though I believe in vaccines a hundred percent, like, and I'm triple vax and everybody I know. And if you, if I had a friend who wasn't vaxxed and I did have a friend who wasn't vaxxed, I sat him down and I was like, listen, yeah, you, I agree a, with you. 1400 people think... dying a day and a billion people have had these vaccines. Like which group do you want to be part of? Right. Like schmuck. I agree like, with you. And I don't think that we can force people and hold them down. And I don't think we should do that. Yeah. And also we need to throw everything at this problem, right? Like the easiest yeah. way to not get polarized by the vaccine, because every time we do that, we just fall into the same trap, which is that vaccines are the only solution, mm. which is not true. Testing right. is a massive part of the solution, right? right. Uh, like therapeutics are a massive part of the solution that came way too late. Like the fact yeah. that we now only now are getting pills is way too late. So yeah. like we actually need to, and frankly, I think this will help with the mm. vaccine debate de-emphasize how do you feel about going bit. back to school because that's been the big controversy now and yeah, my kids are going back on monday they were supposed to go back this week but i'm taking them skiing for an extra week because you're because like, so, you're trapped up there because <laughs> i'm trapped up here basically um, <laughs> it makes it sound like a treat for the kids he's like yeah we can't leave actually yeah, there's can't leave there's too much snow <laughs> uh no they cleared the roads it's, it's fine now it okay. was there was there were three days in, we're talking about tahoe had a blizzard and there was like seven or eight feet of snow in three or four days we were literally trapped in our house and then couple of friends of mine had lost the power and uh where i am i guess we have our own power grid or whatever or power backup and so we were fine so i was like literally going to be hosting another family and i was like i have covid but i'm staying downstairs but if you want to stay upstairs it was like a kind of crazy situation but yeah. um I, I saw eric adams the new mayor of new york was just basically took the position of listen there's more harm being done to kids and they're going to get COVID. this is what i thought was so there's definitely more harm happening. Like this losing of IQ points is crazy. Yeah, and obviously it, it skews towards kids who can't afford tutors or supplemental help, which now we're really doing a disservice because those schools were not good for underprivileged kids already. But the thing I thought was a pretty interesting take, which was Eric Adams said, and I, the first time I'd actually heard it was kids who stay home from school wind up getting COVID just as much mm -hmm. because they're hanging out with their kids, you know, and going to the movies and doing other things or seeing kids otherwise or getting it from their parents so it's not like it's any different going to school than being at home and i was like it kind of makes sense to me i don't know if that's true or not i mean that is highly dependent on the behavior of the families in question that's a that's sure a what i think though is that look omicron in the early days of the pandemic i was sort of like oh my god you guys that it is not a magical beastie that's going to leap on you in the grocery store and like get yeah. you right 
it, it doesn't work that way. Like it's not a lot of FOMA. Blah, blah. No, no, no. Omicron is a yep. magical beastie that's going to jump on you in the yep. grocery store. And you're going to like, I don't, there is not a scenario in which kids are going to be able to stay home and not get it. And so they should be in school as long as they can. But that said, we're deluding ourselves if we think that's going to last because there are going to be, because people will get sick and or have to isolate, there aren't going to be enough bus drivers. There isn't going to be enough teaching staff. Like yep. we should prepare for some disruption. Yeah, without totally going to be disrupted. And like, the teachers unions are just not going to show up. I think this and is going to be the why I'm so, point. yeah, I mean, this is why I'm so irritated that we did an all, that we did hybrid work as a society, but like an all or nothing response to return to school. Right. Like you need to be able to give kids the option. I understand yeah. that this is difficult and it's tricky and it takes some work and you need more technology and we need more money for schools. All of that is true. And we are going to have to figure out as an adaptation to what is about to be. I mean, it's just like climate. You need every solution yep. and you need to adapt your lives to it. December right. is going to be hard yep. for, for like a long time. This is the year, by the way. Remember last year, they were like, oh, we're going to have like yep. the COVID Big plus December. the flu. Yep. And it's going to be a disaster. And nobody got the flu because they were at home. Yep. This year it's is both. the year. I know of a household where they have one side has COVID and the other side has the flu. Right. This is the year where this is going to happen. Double down and then the emergency room is getting filled up or whatever. Yeah. it's Also, it who in the... Okay, nothing. Nothing. <laughs> well, I'm sorry. I looked at the comments like a fool. Oh, well, be careful. There could be some anti-vaxxers in the comments. It's not even that. No. People have strong feelings about... Yeah. Apparently, yeah, whether we need more funding for schools, which... Yeah, that's a no-brainer. Yeah, As a more. woman who ran her school's auction <laughs> for three years... They need more. Is it a public school or charter uh -huh. or public? Yeah, public. Yeah, they definitely need more money. Um, hundred percent. I can't. Yeah. even. I can't even. Mm. Anyway, yes, fair anyway. enough. Tech show. Uh, we're a tech show. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, testing. The testing thing, though. The testing is thing is unquestionably like it is one of those where the technology met the bureaucracy and came to yep. a dead fucking stop. Yep. I'm sorry. I said that. Yeah, you can do all you can. You're not on. You're not on public radio anymore. You can oh say God. whatever you want here. Oh, uh, we so will be it. Yeah, you, you can you could drop f bombs. You Ooh, can don't you tell can, me that because yeah, this is this is the great thing about being an independent podcaster now. <laughs> you don't have word. I'm <laughs> so happy right now. <laughs> it's been great. Yeah. Well, you know, and it's also the grift and the corruption. You know, like if you ever yeah. want to see grift and corruption, like when something is a really easy problem to solve, and you have unlimited resources, like we have here in the United States, or seemingly unlimited resources to solve some of these problems, and it doesn't get solved, like. It's kind of an Occam's razor here. Like, follow why didn't the this money. get solved? Follow the money, right? Speaking of following the money, OpenSea froze $2.2 million oh, yeah. worth of stolen board ape NFTs. Uh, art gallery owner Todd Kramer had his NFT collection stolen from his hot wallet after falling for a phishing scam, according to Yahoo, on December 30th. Um, hot wallets are connected to the internet, but uh, a little bit less secure. MetaMask is a hot wallet. Cold wallet is not connected to the internet, so ice cold, disconnected. Uh, until it is manually plugged into a computer, so the less convenient, but of course, more secure. And uh, this could have been obviously avoided if Kramer was using a cold wallet. Kramer tweeted to OpenSea employees in the company that he was hacked along with the numbers of the apes and mutants that were stolen because they're all numbered and, you know, like guess any other serialized collectible. Uh, the tweet has since been deleted for some reason. Yahoo reported that OpenSea responded to this by freezing 16 board apes and mutant ape NFTs, which are no longer able to be traded. OpenSea's intervention wasn't well received because users saw it as going against decentralization, a core tenet of Web 3.0. Software engineer Grady Booch uh, commented on Todd Kramer's tweet about the stolen NFT quote, silly me. And here I thought the code is the law and that one of the very ideas of cryptocurrencies was the elimination of any possibility of centralized intervention. Hypocrites, every one of you. NFT collector KW.Soul also commented, quote, who was able to freeze the NFTs? Feels pretty anti-crypto to be asking third parties to do this. And ideally, they shouldn't be able to. This was just extremely poor OPSEC on your part. True decentralized ownership. No one should be able to step in. Good luck. So I don't know what you think about NFTs and <laughs> decentralization. But um, yeah, code I mean, is a law, except when it's not. It, right. Well, the code is a law until you have created products and you're selling them. Like, is if OpenSea is a marketplace, yeah. aren't they at some point? I mean, this is the, I don't want to derail our conversation, but everything is moderation at some point. Yeah. If OpenSea wants to exist as a for-profit platform, yeah. 
It wants people to feel safe on its platform and it wants to be able to, or it is, you know, fe- it feels at the, the people who run this company that they need to step in when theft or fraud occurs and make the marketplace safer and more appealing so that people will continue to spend money there and so that they will make money. It, is that, is that, you know, it, the antithesis of Web3? Does it matter? When you build a business, your incentives change. Absolutely. And the, I think this is like a religious thing for certain people in the crypto community, which is we want to eliminate centralized control. It's been a big debate. Um, and when you eliminate centralized control, a lot of bad stuff can happen. Uh, mm-hmm. There are some good things that can happen. But, you know, if you look at whether it's selling of NFTs or content, like there's a reason to have uh, a database that can change as opposed to an immutable one. Like, what if somebody slanders somebody? What if somebody doxes somebody? This idea that you could have a Twitter that's, you know, not censorable. Um, it's like, well, what if somebody gets doxed? And I don't know. What if somebody's... Well, and even if we take it out of Twitter and the idea of what you say, I mean, yeah. Airbnb, look at Airbnb as an example, mm-hmm. right? All of a sudden, they had people on their platform who were trashing houses or people yeah. on their platform who were not representing the houses like they were supposed to be. So Airbnb, the platform, there is no, they can't be hands off. They can't be like no. a completely neutral deliverer of services for right. both sides without stepping in and moderating on some level, whether it's like, oh, we have to have ratings or we have to have a punishment system or we have to let you, you know, give or a insurance or insurance. Exactly. Yeah. Like if you're going to be a marketplace, I mean, I have this sort of theory that like everything is mo- everything is content yeah. moderation, because if you're yeah. going to sit between two entities and try to make money off of them, right. you need to exert control on the entities on either side. Reasonable control, yes. Much? Reasonable yeah. control. The question yeah, is how much yeah. and what, and what, do both, what do both sides want? Like, right. I don't know that anybody wants to live in a world where uh, somebody who hacks your bank account can't have that transaction reversed. And I think this is where like Web 3.0 hits a little bit of a wall, which is, you know, these non-centralized systems have a lot of risk involved in them. And they have a lot of anonymity or pseudo anonymity yes every transaction's on a blockchain but you can create unlimited wallets and you can you know be anywhere in the world and you can be beyond jurisdiction so there's going to be a lot of pain and suffering because there's no insurance because there's nobody checking the transactions because money laundering you know dark money terrorism can all flow through the stuff and that's the naivete of a lot of people who are in the space they just haven't lived long enough to see the ramifications of, you know, a, a, an unregulated system. Regulations exist in a lot of cases because people have been hurt and they want, they want some level of regulation. People want a rating system on Airbnb. They mm-hmm. want insurance. I had one of my places used for, I had a, we were, had a place we were uh, using as an Airbnb, our old house. And somebody threw a party in and did like $6,000 worth of damage and it was covered portioned by the person who threw the party illegally uh, yeah. or against the terms of service. And then also because there was some insurance from Airbnb. It was great. Yeah. It was like, okay, well, we just, the two carpets that were ruined, we just got brand new carpets. It was actually kind of great. Like, and it's, oh. listen, like, it's okay to want a totally decentralized, like, it's okay to want that and it's okay to go off and yeah. do it. But as soon as there's money to be made, the incentives are going to change. That's all I'm saying. As soon as you want to be the platform that sits in the middle and makes the money, you're going to have to make hard calls. Speaking of Airbnb, we got really good on the Segway. 2022, year of the Segway. Uh, <laughs> last night, there was a funny anti-Web 3.0 exchange. I don't know if you've been following the... Oh, we did, because we talked about it when you did your, your pre-episode, your we episode did, yeah. zero. Uh, so this Web 3, you know, banter keeps going between, like, the Web 2.0 Gen Xers and the, you know, anarchist uh, Web 3.0 true believers. Uh, Box CEO Aaron Levy, who is hilarious, uh, and Airbnb CEO Brian uh, Chesky, who is brilliant. Uh, had a back and forth where they literally trolled the shit out of <laughs> Web 3.0 people. And I guess we're supposed to do a dramatic reading here. So I'm going to be Levy uh, <laughs> and you're going to be Chesky. You, gotta, you got time to think about how you're going to interpret this. Hello. But here's my best Aaron Levy. The web is amazing. You can build something of value for billions of people. I, I, I picture him with a lot of energy. I know Aaron. He's, he's, a, a, lot he's of a fired up dude. I mean, yeah, he's, he's fired like up. That. So I'm going to do my best Aaron Levy and fired up. The web is amazing. You can build something of value for billions of people, leveraging endless distribution channels, architecture options, open source and protocols, and definitely scalable infrastructure. Everything gets cheaper and faster every day. 
<laughs> in that case, let's build the entire thing all over again. Oh, we're just starting to feel like things were getting too useful for consumers, enterprise, and developers. Good time to pivot. Ooh, everyone should vote on every single decision. That won't <laughs> take too long to rebuild. Too simple. We need some opaque financial incentives in the mix to spice things up. That's a great idea. Let's financially incentivize early adopters so we never know when we get to product market fit. The current way is just too easy. Love getting confusing early product signal as a founder that can't control for wildly independent variables. This conversation is a public right. We're using DMs. I mean, it's so great. I mean, what I love about this is, um, you know, anybody who's built a startup and hit scale like these two gentlemen have, um, it, it is amazing what we've accomplished since 1992 93 when the web first you know started to take over from aol you know delphi and other dial-up services and we were like well if we could get we could i remember the moment when databases got hooked up to the web browsers or when images or video were supported and it was like oh man if only you could store videos oh if only the bandwidth was cheaper and mm. all of that has occurred in 25 years to the point at which now you can build a service that a billion people use with 10 people. And people have done that. Instagram hit 100 million people famously with, I think, 15 employees. And uh, the idea that you would then rip it apart and then put an opaque financial incentive in the middle of it, what these individuals have learned over time is like, you do not want to confuse the incentives and everything's working wonderfully. So why... What is the actual value we're creating here? Decentralization. Mm -hmm. Okay. We've already talked about like, is that actually it valuable? Value. It, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And maybe for some systems it does. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And this immutable database, like we spent really, all the decades really trying to understand. make databases reversible. I know. I mean, the problem is like and faster. I, the problem is like everything. It, why did it become a religion? Why did it become partisan? Like, why because it's a, we, because, because of the money, the financial because side. of the money. Exactly. So like take it out of that and ask yourself, does decentralization help? In some cases, yes. Does it help to take the middleman out of sending money between countries? Absolutely. Sure. Does it help, you know, to, to create a system by which uh, a transfer can occur without a bank taking a cut in the middle? In fact, if, a, if that cut ends up being as much as the money you're trying to send, sure, there is value in that tweak. Is there value in an immutable database? Sure. If you're trying to figure out like, where does your food come from to make sure I don't get E. coli from it, right? That's right, like a sure. really valuable use for an yep. immutable database. Providence. Yeah. I don't like, there is no reason whatsoever that we can't tweak the system that we have. Yeah. But the very idea that Web3 has to be, well, first of all, maybe we should just not let anybody start calling it Web3 because that all yeah. by itself means it's like a revolution. Yeah, like, something's wrong with the existing thing. Yeah, Can it just be an evolution that's kind of yeah. a big deal and helps some things and isn't great for others and we're just like working our way through it? Yeah. Um, I think it's because of the amount money. of money and the, the multi-level marketing nature of this. It's, yeah. you know, when you buy this NFT, because it's anonymous, this is what people really don't want to talk about. I would say 90, 95% of the projects we've seen, ICOs, 95% were scams or unqualified people. People lost their money. NFTs, I predict, 95%, same thing. Um, and then Bitcoin, Ethereum, and the other coins that have reached some stability, maybe it'll be 50% will lose their money or 80%, who knows. Um, and when you, when you look at that amount of grift and that amount of motivation, well, what behavior comes out? Well, this toxicity comes out because if you're saying, well, these NFTs or these ICOs are bullshit, you're 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 screwing with my paper you're screwing with my bank account and that's mm -hmm. where people get really upset and then they create thousands of anonymous accounts and this is what the toxic bitcoin people do they believe in bitcoin toxicity which is yeah. anybody who doesn't believe in bitcoin do psyops on them you reply to them and say have fun being poor you reply to them and say you don't get it okay boomer and you try to make the attacks more personal and then what they do is they run these attacks because i know i've been on the other side of it every time i would say hey listen if you want to put 1% of your wealth into Bitcoin and you want, or 2% or 3%, and you can afford to lose it. Sure. Have fun. But you know, I wouldn't be 90% Bitcoin because this thing could go to zero. It could be replaced by a better technology and they would do coordinated attacks against me, yeah. you know, make memes or whatever, because they know I have some influence and now I'm, maybe I'm tampering down or maybe I, it could create a contagion of people saying, yeah, you know, it does. Jason's making sense. Like why every other technology is replaced. 
AOL got replaced, Yahoo yeah. got replaced, someday Google and Facebook, Facebook's being replaced now, you know, by Instagram and TikTok. Why wouldn't Bitcoin get replaced? It would seem logical that Bitcoin would be replaced after 10 or 20 years, like any other technology. Or why wouldn't Bitcoin turn out to be unbelievably valuable if it can figure out how to transition from an asset class to a currency, which is going to mm -hmm. be like a hard jump to make that hasn't ever yeah. occurred before, but it doesn't mean it's impossible. Like, sure, that could happen it, too. But the modern iteration of fanboy yeah. is so loaded with technology weapons. Like I remember years ago writing some review of like a Nokia phone that people are still mad about on the internet, oh, right? Wow. And it was like brigading in the comments. I mean, listen, I have written articles comparing Xbox to PlayStation. Like I'm, <laughs> I'm aware of what the fanboy can do. Yeah. The fanboy has a lot of bot tools now that the fanboy did not previously have. Yeah. And it is really a shame because what it means is we can't have like an honest exploration of the benefits and drawbacks of these technologies, both of which exist in probably equal amounts mm. without just getting like shouted out of the room. All right. And then just to put a button on this, Chris Dixon, who uh, has been the target of a lot of the uh, attacks by Jack, he is at A16Z. Uh, Tramoff <laughs> made a funny joke at all in not knowing who he was. <laughs> Chris Dixon is like super. I mean, he's not toxic, but he's super pro crypto. Obviously, he's made that his chosen career and invested, I think, hundreds of millions of dollars in these crypto projects. Um, he decided he would attempt to dunk and say who owns Web 2.0 and listed the institutional shareholders for Square, now Block, and uh, Aaron Levy's Box.com, to which he got <laughs> massively dunked on by everybody. And, I mean, who uh, owns anything, man? A yeah. small number of extremely wealthy people and institutions. That yeah, is the case with cryptocurrency right now, too. Like, come on. Yeah. I mean, A16 owns all that. That was really Jack's point is like A16Z is buying all of these tokens early. And it's just, you know, hey, meet the new boss, same as the old boss type situation. All right. right. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. I think we did about an hour. I think that's enough show for one day. More, and than, enough show. more <laughs> than enough show, but it moved quickly. Uh, that it was did. just a very quick conversation. So I had I like a blast. That. I think we have poked everybody in the eye in Absolutely. every audience. Nobody. Segment. Every audience segment was addressed today. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure who we left out of here. I, I, oh, you know what? We could do a bonus segment about the insurrection. No, we'll leave that for another day. <laughs> not uh, our show. Not our you show. were easy on China today. We were oh, easy yeah, on we're China easy today. On China, we'll China be will be on the docket. China will be on the docket <laughs> for sure. Uh, lots of China news. All right. Uh, we'll see everybody uh, soon. Email producers at thisweekinstartups.com. If you have uh, ideas for guests or whatever, if you're a PR firm, please don't ever email us. We do not take... Uh, requests for guests to be on the show to sell their ebooks. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks to our producers, and it's going to be a great 2022. Thanks, Molly. Thanks. Happy New Year.